thank you, Noah, and the worship team. And thank you, God, for uh, the praise of the testimony of a soul as turned from darkness to light. And what a beautiful testimony and witness to how that uh, aligns with what we find as one of the major themes in the book that we've been studying in 2 Corinthians, and that is uh, God reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. And that's the testimony that we've heard about Joshua Hines. That's what we're about as the body of Christ in the church. So it's an honor to be here with you this morning. It's an honor to study God's word this morning. As I was thinking about, uh, as we were worshiping and, and I was thinking about the message and the text this morning, I just was reminded how privileged we are to have God's special revelation. And when we look at what we found in chapter 3 and then what we're going to see here in chapter 4, we these are truths that we would never deduce on our own. The way the apostle describes heaven, the way he describes what God has done for us, we would never know this. Now, there's general revelation. There's things that we can know just, just generally speaking about what God has created. There's a message there. But I'm just so grateful for the specifics that God has given us. And we'll get into some of those specifics this morning. We're going to venture into chapter 4, but you will recall that we spent some time in chapter 3. And we ended that chapter uh, with this verse hopefully reverberating in our minds. And it was verse 18. Very, very powerful truth. And this is how the Apostle Paul sees his life, sees the world, sees what it means to be a Christian. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so we were treated to special revelation regarding the glory of God. You'll recall that... That word glory, what we're beholding, uh, has to do with a weightiness of, of essence, of presence, of character, and also an external physical beauty. So there's something absolutely beautiful about God from the outside and the inside. And what we learn, that weightiness, that, that heaviness of, of essence there, has to do with his character. Because not only does he have uh, perfect characteristics in his power and his love and his grace, his mercy, his kindness, but they are all morally good. They all interact. The attributes of God, the being of God, constantly interacts with itself in a perfect, morally good way so that there is nothing impure or unholy about this God. Though he's beautiful inside and out. And Because when we turn to the Lord, Christ removes the veil. We are able to see that about God and learn new truths. See see more and more beauty as we give ourselves more and more to the Lord. And I was reminded in this text that uh, my tendency is to read this and think, well, Paul, you had this special relationship with Christ and in the desert and he revealed himself to you and you're the big A apostle we were talking about this morning in Sunday school. But he says we all. Everybody, when we turn to the Lord, the Lord removes the veil and we are able to see the glory of God, not in person as 
Christ, God was manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. So there were eyewitnesses who actually did see the person of God manifested. But what we learn here primarily is through the word of God and his revelation. That's how we get to know God and see him through the eyes of our heart and the manifestations of the body of Christ and the living spirit. And I was reminded that the word of God is living and active. So we don't just read us it, but it reads us. And so by the power of God, when the veil is removed, we can see more and more of his beauty by knowing his character and his person. And we long for that day when we will see the Lord in person. Gazing at his beauty is what makes us more and more like him. I read a quote recently by Os Guinness. Uh, he's a, a author worthy of reading his material. And actually he is from, some of you maybe, some of you beer drinkers, maybe thinking, oh, Guinness beer, that's a good beer. Actually he is, he is of the Guinness beer family. But he's a powerful believer. And he says, Christianity is the only religion whose God, whose God bears the scars of evil. Now that is so profound because if you study other religions and what they teach about their God and, and the dynamic of suffering and evil, and actually we're going to spend quite some time in this passage, uh, actually in chapter 4, uh, which is a, um, a chapter a lot about suffering. And we're going to look at a few ideas that the world has and different religions have about suffering and the meaning and the purpose and how, the, how their gods or the false gods interact with it. What do we do with it? And yet we have in this revelation that God who's above all evil comes into our world and bears the scars of evil that he did not deserve. The message of grace in scripture is just so profound and awesome. So we know him through this. He's, he manifests himself through his actions. That he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He, he fought for us. He bled for us. He died for us. He won the victory over sin and death for us. And so as we learn these truths, it just adds and adds and adds to his glory before our eyes. A new covenant life, we're learning, is a, absolutely a Christ-centered life. It's just all about Christ. Seeing Christ, knowing Christ. Back in the Gospels in John chapter 640. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So Christianity is every much looking at Christ. And I hope and trust that as we continue to study this book in Holy Scripture, that it only serves to make us more and more aware of the beauty and the glory of God. Because that's what changes us. And that's what enables us to make it through this broken life and this broken world. It's the uh, hope of Christ in us. So, with that said, we're kind of keeping in this vein of thinking about beholding the glory of the Lord, gazing at Christ, pressing in. Let's read our passage for today. We're going to cover a whopping two verses 
in chapter 4. And he begins with therefore, which is, of course is important. He's going to do this a couple times in this chapter. So in light of everything we just learned in chapter 3. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So right off the bat, I think it's important to understand that Paul sees this beautiful ministry that he has been given, the ministry of the new covenant, to proclaim it, to teach it, to share it, as Noah read in that scripture, to not conceal it, but to proclaim the good news of Christ. He sees it as a mercy that was given to him. It's not something that that he worked really, really hard, and he worked harder than the others, and so he got the prize of this great, powerful ministry. Uh, It's not something uh, that he deserved in any way. And so it's important for us to know because it kind of lays this foundation of how grateful he is to just even be able to serve God in this way. He's been given this gift that he does not deserve and he gets to be a part of the mission of God and the plan of God. There's three things in my mind that stand out that are of significance in these verses that we want to look at this morning, and that is finding heart, renouncing sin, and loving truth. So, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. We don't give up. So when one turns to the Lord and the veil is removed, things change. This ministry, the truths of the new covenant, have given the apostle tremendous hope, a bold hope, he has told us previously, which means courageous living. And one of the things that will change about us as we gaze at the glory of God and become more like him is that we will be more bold. We will we will have courageous living because we worship a courageous God, a bold God, a fearless God. And it's also a freeing life because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, the Apostle has reminded us. So a bold life, a free life, he's freed us from sin, he's freed us from death, from the power of Satan. And so it's because of the truths that he has laid out in chapter 3, he says that he does not, or we, do not lose heart. It's Paul and his ministry team, and really all believers, do not lose heart because God has given them life. What does it mean to lose heart? Well, pretty much what you would expect it to mean. To lose one's motivation, to accomplish some valid goal. Uh, to become discouraged or to give up. So what is it that's keeping the Apostle Paul motivated, even though his ministry in life is harder than we will ever, many of us, if not all of us, will ever experience? What keeps him motivated? What keeps him from sinking down? Well, the gospel truths that we have covered in the New Covenant, God's a strength. 
But because we've already looked at it from that angle, I want to take this truth from a little bit of a different perspective, if you will think with me or reason with me. So when Paul says we don't lose heart, you can also take the opposite of that. And if, if you haven't lost something, you've found something. So I, I, if we look at it from this angle, the reason that Paul is not discouraged, the reason he's not losing his momentum, his inspiration to continue to serve the Lord, is because he's found heart, if you will. He's found his heart. He's, he's found that, that which he needs to understand life and, and to press on. So that's why I've entitled this actually Finding Heart. Because not only do you not lose heart when you turn to the Lord, but you find yourself, you find your heart, you understand your heart. And so it has a lot to do with identity, which was um, the song that Olivia sang for us. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Second Corinthians 5.17 So finding your heart not losing your heart, finding your heart, I think, has a lot to do with identity. Now, think about what, why are we motivated to do anything as we go through life? We're always looking for, uh, we're looking for things that will keep us upbeat. We're, we're looking for pleasant experiences. We're, we're looking for good relationships, good friendships. Uh, maybe for some of that age, we're, we're looking to to find a family, find a spouse, and settle in. We're trying to figure out how life works, how to make it. Um, what, what is success? What do we seek? How much time do we spend on certain things? We're working through life, and we're constantly determining uh, through our actions, what do we value the most? You know, you can just look at your life and plot out your calendar and pretty much see What do you value the most? What do you really love based on where you put your money, where you put your time, your desires, and so forth? And so, you know, how how do we know what to pursue, how long to pursue it, what's really worth it? Well, it's it's just human nature that in us that want to figure all this out. You know, what makes things tick? What makes me tick? And when we turn to the Lord and, and the veil is removed... There are grand theological truths that happen to us that that make their presence known in all of our pursuits and figuring out our identity and, and really what the world is all about. Grand theological truths. Because when we turn to the Lord and He, he, he gives us a new heart. So we, we have a heart that may be confused. We have a heart that may be discouraged. We, may have, we have a heart that may not even know what life's all about, why we're even here. There are people that do not know why they're even here. Why do I exist? And if, if you don't know why you're here, why you are who you are, you better believe it's going to affect all of these things you pursue in life. How you look at yourself, how you look at whatever you believe about any higher being. And so having a heart that is turned to Christ and actually been given a new heart as a new creation helps us understand these things. In other words, it helps us find ourselves. We don't lose heart because we found ourselves in Christ. Now we know why we're here. We know why everything exists for the glory of God. We exist for the glory of God. Have you ever wondered, why did, you know, what am I even doing here? Why is this world even here? For the glory of God. 
God has revealed to us in Holy Scripture. Something that we may not figure out on our own. So these truths affect the way we look. The way even we understand and look at beauty. How much are we worth? You'll get different answers based on what you believe about life, your existence, and your very identity and your being. So when we find our hearts in Christ, and we still live in a broken world, as you know, but in a sense, we're not broken. And I think that's a little bit what Paul's saying here. Even though I live in a broken world and it's hard and there's suffering in it, I'm not broken. My heart's not broken because my heart's in Christ. Christ has it now. And I know how life works. And, and, and I, can, I don't let even suffering get the best of me. Or hardships get the best of me because I can see it in the grand scheme of things now. And I know whose I am. And when we did our little identity series, one of the, uh, the most important truths that we learned about finding out who you are is not so much finding out who you are, but whose you are. That's more important. So when you understand this, we live for His glory. We, we value His ways more than our own. And I think this is profound for Paul to say because of all that he's been through. I mean, this guy, he's been attacked from everything that you can be attacked by in this world. He, he knows battle, hardship, betrayal, salt. He's been slandered. He's been belittled. belittled. Um, you know, how do you not lose heart? When all of these things happen to you. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times in life, like something will happen, a hardship or, or something that I really need to think clearly about or make a, a decision about, and I need to do it quick. And I'm, and I'm kind of trying to overcome that. And then something else happens before I had a chance to, to, to get my bearing straight for this. So now I have two things to deal with. And then so as I'm thinking about those two things, something else happens. And then you, you, you know, the, the, uh, the conveyor belt just keeps going with or without you. The conveyor, conveyor belt of the world. And so it's important for us and the Apostle Paul, as he said, he doesn't lose heart because he knows who he is. He doesn't lose heart because he gave his heart to God. And a heart given to God is not lost. That he will go the distance. Identity. And then the Apostle Paul shares with this church. In verse 2. About renouncing sin. But we have renounced. And we're going to look at these words. Disgraceful. Underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's words. And it's interesting that from the start of Paul's conversion, and this is what happens when we turn to the Lord and he gives us a new heart, he sees sin for what it really is. Uh, he, 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 now he has redefined sin. And as we were reminded this morning, this is somebody who was persecuting the church, which was persecuting Christ. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus said to him. He thought he was doing the right thing. That was sin. That was sin. So now that the veil is removed, he sees sin for what he, it really is. And he renounces it as opposed to doing these disgraceful 
things. Well, what does it mean to renounce something? Well, it means to be determined not to do it anymore. To see it for what it really is. Uh, to put it aside, to reject it. Or in this case, to refuse to become involved in doing what is secret or shameful. So he, he's turned from it. When he turned to the Lord, he turns from sin. That's a salvation experience. It's part of it. It's to renounce these things. And of course, the idea is, well, if you, if you love God, if you're grateful to God, and you are a worshiper of God, are you going to continue to do the very things that displease this person that you love, this being that you love? So it, it makes sense, but it's a nature change. It's a whole character change. It's an outlook not only do we, we change the way we see God and adore Him, but salvation enables us to hate the things that God hates. And that is sin. So He turns from it as He gazes at the face of Jesus. He stops walking in the darkness. He st any craftiness. Now, there had to be some craftiness here in Paul to want to persecute the church. Uh, he, I mean, he, he went to the... Elders, I think even the high priest, to get permission to get to get letters. Why? To put them in prison and possibly even to death. There's there's plotting here. There's there's cunning here. And he stopped and he realizes now what sin is. And as a Pharisee, stop pretending that he's clean based on what's on the outside and look at the inside of his own heart and see it for what it really is. So. When we see God for who he really is, we can't help but to see sin for what it really is. And then we realize how much sin we have and how much changing we need to do. And so the Christian life, it's part and parcel. It's confession and renouncing of sin. And we'll do that all the way to heaven, by the way. I liked what I've always appreciated what Frank Francis Schaeffer uh, has said about sanctification. Because sanctification is, you know... It's a hard thing. You know, we're saved by grace, through faith, by grace alone and Christ alone. But then we, God makes us holy. So he declares us holy, fit for heaven. But then he makes us that way, practically speaking, in real life, that sanctification. And that's a joint effort. That's not something that Christ does all on his own. That's something we participate in. It. But Francis Schaeffer says that um, there's not perfect holiness and healing but substantial holiness and healing. And I like that definition because it leaves room for, it takes time for sanctification. It's hard. But there should be a substantial, meaning a noticeable change somewhere along the way in our Christian life, in our wholeness and our holiness. It should be substantial. So if there's nothing there, as Jesus would teach, about fruit, bearing fruit, you know, if there's nothing there... Maybe there was not change. Maybe the root of the tree is still evil. Substantial change. So let's look at a few of these words that the apostle uh, has these meanings that he's renounced. Because the idea is that there's others in the church, unfortunately, that have not renounced these things. Now you find these things not just out in the world, but unfortunately even in the church. So he's this... The word disgraceful means shameful, has to do with secret sins. 
you know, that, that the, the plotting and the planning behind the scenes uh, so that nobody sees what you're really up to, but you have this agenda and you're really up to no good. And he's saying, you know, when, when I realized it about myself, when I turned to Christ, I was ashamed that I was having these thoughts. It's a shame that I would manipulate people or set things up so that I could get my way at their expense, even though they are wrong. And he says, we refuse to practice cunning. Sin's complicated, isn't it? Like you can't define it in just word, in, in one word. Uh, cunning is trickery involving evil. It's, it's the craftiness, it's the treachery. And what better example than to go to the garden uh, when Satan tempts Eve with craftiness. You know, he's careful in how he crafts his words and sets the scene for these things. It's, it's a setup. It's, it's, uh, it's trickery, treachery. And it also decide, uh, describes one's willingness to do whatever it takes to get their way. If I got to lie, if I got to do things behind the scene, if I got to make myself look like one thing in order to get what I want, I'm justified in this because the most important thing is for me to get what I want. It's, it's, it's the idea of having no scruples. There are no moral boundaries I have to follow other than me getting what I want. So it's very, very cunning. A good example was found in Luke chapter 20, verses 22 through 26, when you know, Jesus had his enemies as well. They were always trying to trip him up or actually get him to trip himself up. So in this passage... Uh, the Jewish leaders came to him and they said, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. That's that word. They were up to no good. They're carefully choosing their questions and their words. It's not for good. It's for his harm because they are jealous of him. They, do, they are his enemies and they're looking for ways to keep themselves looking good and make him look bad. He sees right through it. But that's the kind of craftiness that we're talking about. The questions. So when evil has its way, unfortunately, it will bring us slower. You ever notice that? When you give into it and say, okay, it just will bring you down another notch. And then another notch and another notch. And different degrees of darkness and evil. And these are things that we need to think through as believers and, of course, renounce. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ in favor of the beautiful glory of God. And I appreciate this reminder because I think it's something that we all need to be reminded of in our Christian lives. And that is, are there things that I need to turn away from? Maybe again. Maybe again I renounced this, this thing, but it, it came back up. Uh, sometimes there are, you know, I might be struggling with with a sin and uh, think, yeah, I, I probably need to do something about this. And then it comes at me from another angle, say from a teaching or from the pulpit or something, then that's God's voice saying, Actually, yeah, you need to renounce this sin and honor me in this way. Whoever loves me obeys my commands. That's what Jesus said. It all fits in. And, and, and the gospel helps us to be honest with our own hearts. We might find ourselves saying one thing 
and doing just the opposite. And part of the gospel setting us free is to live true. And part of living true is to own our own sins. Of course, own what Christ has done in our lives, but own our own sins and renounce them to the point where we want and love God more than our own sin. So as we gaze at Christ, this is what happens. As we change from one degree of glory to another, God is good. And then lastly, we see loving truth. We've, dis- we've renounced the disgraceful things, underhanded ways, refused to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So when he says the open statement of truth, he's appealing to uh, just the truthfulness and the reality of what he says and how he lives. In other words, there's a self-evidence to it. There's nothing under the table or under the shelves. There's no manipulation. He's just being as open, plain, and clear and truthful as possible. So it's, it's the reality. Truth and reality go hand in hand. And when we turn to Christ and the veil is removed, there's another transition that happens. And that is we love truth. I know that that was one of the things that I was kind of surprised about my conversion was all of a sudden how important just basic truth was to me. Like it really mattered what people said, how people felt, how the world came into existence. These things really mattered because there's, there's truth and, and falsehood. And so one of the gauges really of our Christianity is our love for truth, of course, because it's equated with the person of Christ who says, I am the truth. So to love the truth as found in God's Word, is to love Christ. It's the same thing. He is the Word. He was with God in the beginning. So to fall in love with Christ is to fall in love with truth. Now listen to this indictment in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2.10. And with all the wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So that that perishing, that eternal damnation, was the result of the refusal to love the truth. He didn't say to love Jesus or to believe in Jesus. And here he says to love the truth. Of course, Jesus brings the truth and Jesus is the truth. So people are perishing because of their refusal to embrace reality as it really is is you know to to not love the truth is to not be saved we talked about the plumb line this morning there's such a thing as truth there's such a thing as a plumb line that god uses and he gauges all the thoughts all the attentions all the plans all the morals of man by his plumb line he's the standard he's the this is the canon the measuring stick Everything else is to conform to that and bow to that. So the apostle loves the truth, renounces sin. Now here's one of the things that he renounces. 
that I saved for this point, and that is tampering with God's Word. Tampering with God's Word. That is a dangerous thing because of the plumb line. Because there's one faith, one church, one gospel, one message. To tamper with that is a terrible thing. It's, it's in the list of things that need to be renounced because it means to call something to become false as a result of deception or distorting it, changing its shape, changing its meaning to mean this instead of that or, or even the nuance of it. And false teachers would distort God's Word. That's why... A lot of the work of the church through the ages has been correcting distortions. So the false teachers would distort it by by presenting it in such a way so that it says, says what they want it to say for their own personal gain and glory. Now this, we, this is just an age-old battle. And the church still faces it today. Uh, I mean, I hear in different teachings all the time, pastors or whatever, teachers saying things and, and presenting the Word of God. It's way off. It's not at all what it means. Unless that's what you want to see happen in your life. If, that, if, if that's your goal, to get these things or to have people look at you in this way, then you can take God's Word and distort it. But there's such a thing as tampering with it. And by the way, that same word is the word uh, used in extra-biblical writings for diluting wine. So we use the word, that's a watered-down gospel. Well, there's something to that because that's exactly what we can do. We can dilute the truth and the, the, the substance and the purity of God's word. By distorting it, by twisting it, by manipulating it, by trying to make it say what we want it to say. And Christians abuse God's word. You know, if we if we want our kids to obey us, have you ever abused God's word and make it say what it doesn't say just so you can get instill fear into your kids or into your spouse? Using God's word to, to, for you to get power and using it out of context, diluting it, distorting it. It happens in the church. Paul says he has renounced that. I turned also to another uh, pastoral epistle. And this is Paul's letter to Timothy, the young man. His disciple took him under his wing. God's anointing was on Timothy. Paul saw that. He writes to Timothy, who had a lot of responsibilities in the churches. In chapter 4, 3 through 5. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth. And wander off into myths. And as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, I really like that as a pastor because there's a lot of obstacles and hindrances that the church faces. There's a lot of things going out there. And then then you get people who don't even want to listen to the truth, and that's discouraging. And you think, well, then what do you do? Sometimes I throw up my arms. I've thrown up my arms with millennials. 
if, I, if I'll be honest with you. Because millennials think different. And, and I get so frustrated because I have like my idea of a foundation or a platform so we can have a good, meaningful conversation. And they don't come at truth that way. So I'm like, well, what do you even do with them? And in, isn't it interesting that Paul says, don't give up. Here's what you do. You keep ministering the new covenant truth. You keep, yeah, they're going to distort it. They're going to water it down. You keep doing the work. You have God's truth. Here it is. It's in His holy word. You just keep bringing it. You bring it the, the best way you can, as clear as you can. And so the apostle says, you know, to, to these people, I, I'm not watering this down. I'm not watering my life down. I'm not pretending to be something. You see my weaknesses. You see my strengths. Here I am. And I'm giving you God's message as it has been given to me. And you've got to wrestle with it by the open, open statement of the truth. And he commends pe- himself to people's consciences in the sight of God. Now, that's an interesting thing to do because Paul is banking on God's truth, which teaches us that men have a conscience. And a conscience is something within us, we're created with it, that enables us to at least, not, not perfectly or clearly in some more than others, but we have this idea of truth and right and wrong. And, the, and he, he describes it in the book of Romans as saying, you know. You know there's one God. You know there's a creator. You know you shouldn't be killing people, murdering people, and committing. You know you shouldn't be sinning in these ways. Your conscience is bearing witness to you. And so Paul is appealing to this conscience. So there's this, in, in some essence, there's a self-evidence to his message. And, he, and he's kind of saying, well, I know you're resisting it, you're suppressing it, but there's an inkling or a part of you that knows it's true. So he's appealing to that. Look, just look around the reality. And think about what your own heart is telling you. Have you ever heard the God? I don't know what your salvation experience is, but there were times where I heard the gospel and my own mind was telling me, because seeds had been planted, this is right and true. You need to give your life to Christ. I'm telling myself this. But myself is also telling me, oh, not right now. Maybe in the future, I've got plans, beginning to see this possibility, but not right now. That's myself telling me this. But my, so I deny it, and I don't see it clear, but, and this is before salvation. So the, there's a sense in what's the Apostle Paul, he just comes, he puts his message out there, and he's saying, look, I'm trusting God to activate it. Just trusting God to activate it, to drive it in, because it's my job to share it, and it's God's job to drive it home. One of the great theologians, um, A.A. Hyde, said he knew that the truth had such a self-evidencing power that even where it was rejected and hated, it commended itself to the conscience as true. And those ministers who are humble and sincere, who are not wise in their own conceit, but simply declare the truth as God revealed it, commend themselves to the consciousness of men. So it's a love of truth. And even those that don't know Christ have 
a conscience. There's something about them that wants to love truth, that can see it. And that's an avenue in that the Apostle Paul uses for the gospel. Truth. So, to be in the midst of a people who adore God and love His truth, which I think we, we are building in this kingdom outpost here, it brings my heart tremendous encouragement and comfort to hear God's Word go out as it does in this community of faith through the worship songs, through the different leadership that is offered and the truths that are taught in our Sunday school rooms. We, we are striving, I believe, to be a people of truth, a people that love God's truth. We're working hard to long for God's truth, to know God's truth, because that opens our eyes to the glory of it. And that's the community that we want to strive to be. So his straightforward communicating of the gospel was a crucial aspect of their salvation. Just straightforward. I was always amazed at Billy Graham's um, crusades. If you ever, um, many of you have listened to him, because tens of thousands of people would attend these things and get saved. But if you just listen to the message, it wasn't. A, it's not entertainment. It's not a show. It's not a performance. It was the straightforward preaching of God's message to humanity. And that truth found its way into people's hearts. And that's how it's been throughout history. People, the people who are the most effective at knowing and being able to clearly communicate God's truth are the people needed most in the church. Lay it out there and let God do the work. So I want to close with this scripture as we think about these truths. Because... This puts some responsibility on us as we also are ministers of the new covenant. Romans 10, very um, common verse. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And Paul's conclusion is this when it comes to salvation. And what do we not want? Do we not want others to come into the kingdom of God? Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. So may we, we be faithful, sharers. Just the simple gospel truths servants of the most high God Jesus went to great lengths to save us and to call us into this church family that we're all a part of that we're all growing in and growing in our knowledge so when we turn to the Lord and renounce our sin may we find ourselves in love with our Savior and His truth May God bless the preaching of his word.